You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Grace. And today we're going to be talking about the story of Beth Lynn Barr. So she was born on December 20th, 1970 to Charles and Donna Barr. She had an older brother, James, and the family lived on Princeton Boulevard in Wilkinsburg Borough, which is about seven miles east of downtown Pittsburgh. Less than a month shy of her seventh birthday in November of 1977, Beth was abducted while walking home from school after an early dismissal before Thanksgiving break. Less than two years later, her body was found in a shallow grave on the edge of a cemetery about six miles from where she was taken. On November 23, 1977, Beth Lynn Barr had an early dismissal from Johnston Elementary School leading into Thanksgiving break. This elementary school and her home were located in Wilkinsburg, PA, which is near Pittsburgh, considered Pittsburgh. She normally walked the 10 minutes home with a friend, but on this day, her friend was picked up by her mother, so Beth walked home alone. So I'm confused. She was six years old and she was walking home alone? So, first of all, it was only a couple of streets away from her home, between her home and the school. And also, the only other thing I can say is that it was the 70s. That's just crazy to me, having a child. I don't know if I would let my six-year-old walk home alone oh yeah i mean now of course (laughs) yeah but back then i guess it was a little bit different so um a more recent report actually says she normally got a ride home with a neighbor but that neighbor wasn't going straight home on this day and then i found another source that said that she normally walked with her brother and a friend but the friend got a ride and her brother was sick that day so honestly i'm not 100 percent sure but it all of them ended in her walking at least part of the way home alone. I'm confused. Like, obviously, when they're in school, usually parents work. But if her brother was homesick that day, you'd think her parents would be readily available to pick up, right? It just also throws me for the fact that six-year-old's walking home. Yeah, that's a really good point. But, yeah, like I said, the only thing I can point out is 70s, question mark? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I wonder, too, I mean, her brother was homesick, but do we know much about the brother like we know that she was you know kindergarten first grade but was he maybe like fourth or fifth grade maybe i mean i think elementary schools technically ran up to sixth or seventh grade typically in that time um they didn't cut where like we cut them now at like third or fourth grade Mm -hmm. um so it could it's possible that it could have been a brother that if he was sick he could just kind of stay home by himself. Plus if the 6-year-old is walking <laughs> 10 True. minutes every day without an adult, I don't know if the thought would be there to have an adult stay home with the sick child. I'm just imagining that it's an older brother because of her age. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, he was definitely older. I'm just not sure how much. So it wasn't reported until recently that she actually walked part of the way with two other girls who were sisters, but they did split up before Beth made it home. 
So one of the girls, Tisha Davison, describes the walk saying that they were just laughing and discussing what they would be doing for Thanksgiving. She said at one point, the sisters needed to go one way and Beth headed home in the other direction. And I have, um, I will post some maps on the, on Instagram, but I mean, it was blocks away from her home. She was so close. Uh, Davison obviously regrets that decision, but she was a child at that time, and they assumed that the neighborhood was safe. Um, police believe that Beth was abducted just minutes after their parting. Later, an elderly neighbor would report seeing Beth in a car with a man just blocks from her home. Do we know what the vehicle looked like or a description of the man? So I will give a description of the man in just a little bit. And I do know that the vehicle was a blue sedan with red and white plates. So when Beth didn't return home that afternoon, her older brother went to look for her. He talked to the sisters that she had been walking with at one point, and they told him about the direction they last saw her walking and when they split up. The police showed up to the sister's house the very next day, and they tried several times to jog the girl's memories to see if they could remember anything odd, but they never could. According to an interview from February of this year, Tisha Davison still can't believe the case is unsolved after all these years. She says that the incident forever changed her and shaped how protective she ended up being of her children and grandchildren. She was quoted saying, I tell them, don't go near nobody's car. Don't look for nobody's dog if they're saying they can't offer you no candy that I can't give you. Don't just go. It literally changed a lot. Um, And she had told this to Rick Earl, Target 11 investigator of Pittsburgh, who um, has covered this story for quite a while. So Beth's dad was a Wilkinsburg police officer, and he and dozens of coworkers began searching the area. The neighborhood was terrified and basically went into lockdown. Edgewood Police Chief Robert Payne was an investigator with the Allegheny Police at that time and says that the Allegheny Police Superintendent at that time offered Police Chief Harry Hodgins 300 police officers to help with the search. Is it possible that she was taken because her father was a police officer? I know that um, my husband's dad is a police officer and a man that he had arrested showed up at their front door. Um, trying to scare him. Thankfully, it never escalated into anything, but I'm sure it's not the only time that that's happened. Yeah. First of all, that's scary as shit that that happened. <laughs> it is. Um, and, but I think it's a really good point. That's definitely a possibility. Um, but unfortunately, as the day progressed, Chief Hodgins decided not to bring in the officers at all. So he just rejected any help from... Um, the Allegheny police superintendent. Chief Payne believes that this was a critical mistake made by an inexperienced police force. Homicide investigations are very difficult and take a large amount of manpower and time. He doesn't believe that having patrol officers investigate was very effective, and many believe that the local police should have accepted help much sooner. And it's sad, but unfortunately that's pretty on par for the 70s, just kind of having that that pride and wanting to have your local police to be able to solve it. So a well-known psychic from Delaware was even called in not long after the kidnapping had taken place. And there were also others that came forward with visions of grave markers and water. 
Still, Beth's mother, Donna, did not give up hope. She was convinced that her daughter would be found safe. But sadly, on March 22nd, 1979, 16 months after she disappeared, Beth's body was found in a shallow grave at the edge of Restland Memorial Cemetery in Monroeville by resident Joseph Leonard. Her skeleton was still wearing the red pantsuit, blue tennis shoes, and plaid coat she had been wearing the day of her kidnapping. So it's interesting in reference to the psychic's visions, the location of her body was in a cemetery. So there's the grave markers and where the duck pond is located. So there's the water. So take that however you will. Dr. Cyril Wecht was the Allegheny County coroner at the time. Uh, the body was badly decomposed, but the autopsy did confirm that she had been stabbed in the chest multiple times. And I did see one source that said she was actually stabbed directly in the heart. Assistant Chief Deputy Coroner Anthony Pankowski said that the condition of the skeleton was consistent with her being deceased since the day she was kidnapped. She was officially identified through dental records. And it was confirmed by Lieutenant Robert Thomas, Police Chief Harry Hodgins, and Monroeville Chief George Gregowich that areas adjacent to her shallow grave had been searched, but the area where she was found had never been searched. He also said that given the state of the remains, it would be impossible to tell if she had been raped, but he did order tests of her clothing. In an interview from November of last year, Donna Barr said that those around her tried to protect her from specific information as best they could for her sanity's sake. Chief Payne has chased down many leads over the years, even traveling to Florida to interview a potential suspect. There was even an arrest made, but the suspect's alibi checked out, so he was the strongest lead came from an elderly neighbor who says they saw Beth speaking to a man in a blue sedan with red and white license plates, which police believe to be Ohio plates. There was also another witness that actually wrote down the car's license plate number because earlier that morning, the driver of this car had approached her at a Port Authority transit stop on Ardmore Boulevard. Johnston Elementary School was right across the street. He said something apparently obscene to her, and when she threatened to call the police, the driver, the driver made a U-turn on Ardmore Boulevard toward Parkway East. And I did, um, I will also share some maps of this on Instagram, just to give you an idea of proximity of all of these places that I'm speaking about. The woman shared the information with the police when they knocked on her door while canvassing the neighborhood after Beth was declared missing. Both witnesses gave a description of the man driving the car. The woman at the bus stop described him as a white male in his 40s, 5'10 or 5'11, medium build with medium brown curly hair. He was wearing a gray suit and square blue tinted sunglasses. And this was apparently close to the description given by the elderly neighbor. The woman from the bus stop also added that he looked like he may have worked an office job um, and he may have been wearing a necktie and that he was specifically not attractive. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Police followed the leads to a car that matched the description and they found it in a Conley's Motor Inn parking lot in Wilkins Township. And they even combed the surrounding area for evidence, but they found nothing. And they actually discovered that that had been a rental car and it had not been rented out on the day of Beth's abduction. As far as I know, they never asked the woman at the bus stop if the rental manager or any other employee might have been the man that she saw. Because even if the car wasn't rented out, who's to say that someone that worked for the company wasn't driving the car? 
Uh, I'm not sure if there were some things that were never released to the public, but it kind of seems like this information was taken without question and no further investigation. The son of a former Turtle Creek police officer recounts the story that his father had passed to him. The officer had been at Keller's Hardware Store in Turtle Creek around the time of the kidnapping when a man walked in to purchase a shovel and some other items which caught the officer's attention. It isn't out of the realm of possibility that the man left and headed to Wilkinsburg. The officer called Wilkinsburg police with the tip, but the lead was never followed up on. Um, I believe he probably called after Beth was announced missing. And I'm not sure if that man matched the description given by the two witnesses. I heard it was confirmed that he was a white man. And that's all I heard. But I think that's something really interesting and worth looking into. So a reporter by the name of Zandi Dudiak uh, was actually a brand new reporter for the Wilkinsburg Gazette at the time of the murder. The case deeply impacted her life. And since 2014, she's run a website about the case. It's called One Day in November, Who Killed Beth Lynn Barr? The introduction to the site says, this blog will serve as a place to share information with the hope that maybe someone will put together the pieces needed to find Beth's killer and close Beth's case. She said that she even occasionally receives brand new information about it, and she tracks all tips and turns them over to investigators. There's also Rick Earl, who has been reporting on this story since it began in 1977, months after his November 2020 investigative report about the story during its 43-year anniversary, which included an interview with Donna Barr, uh, Beth's mother. And you can watch that online if you feel like having your heart ripped out. Um, police received a four-page handwritten letter about the case, pointing a finger at a deceased police officer. The letter was not signed. Initially, Beth's mother, Donna, was hopeful. She thought a physical handwritten letter sounded like really good, solid evidence. So I just got done um, looking over the Teresa Rhodes case, and there was a police officer who was super shady and into drugs, and he was actually arrested for murder for hire. And he's deceased, but they believe that he might have been linked to other cases. So I'm wondering if it's going to be him. I do remember seeing her name in a list because they thought she might be associated with a number of other murders. So, I mean, it definitely could be. I really don't think it's the same police officer that was referenced in the letter, since they're so adamant that he could have nothing to do with it. So I'm sure if it was the same one, something would have been said. But I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. True. So the anonymous author wrote, In 1977, I was one of many who went to search for this beautiful, innocent little girl. This case has affected me my entire adult life. She mentions that she knows Beth's parents and then asks if the dead police officer's prints may still be on file for comparison. She mentions how terrible she feels writing this down and sending it. Chief Payne reviewed the letter, and he says that after having read it many, many times, he's still having trouble digesting the message. So apparently the police officer mentioned had never been a suspect, and the letter fails to offer any real proof. He says there is no reason to believe that this officer or any other were involved in this abduction. But are they going to explore it or just flat out deny that he's involved? 
Um, I mean, I didn't see of any investigation into this. So I really think it was just kind of like, nope, there's no way. Not saying that every cop is bad, but I mean, there are a few like the one I mentioned before. And so it's interesting that they're not going to, or they're not releasing information that they did investigate that section. It could be true. And the letter was four pages long. And as far as I know, the whole thing's never been released. Any reports I've seen are just given kind of little tidbits that the police have released. So they could be investigating and maybe just trying to play it off. But as far as I heard, they're not publicly looking into it. Uh, so Donna Barr, Beth's mother, also knew the officer that was mentioned, and she's shocked that his name was mentioned in the letter. Some of the letter apparently raises legitimate points, but begins to devolve a bit as the author mentions strange interactions with the officer and how she loved him. So I would really love to know more about that, <laughs> because what that's she very Sorry. vague. What was that? What she are we talking about so um the author mentioned strange interactions with the officer and how she loved him are we saying the author is saying she loved this police officer or that we're saying that beth lynn loved this police officer i assumed that the author was talking about herself okay um, i wasn't just wasn't sure yeah that's that's how i took it but I mean, like I said, they give such vague little snippets, so it's really hard to read into it too much. I want um, this letter. I know, me too. I want to get my linguistic hands on this letter. Yeah. So this theory about a police officer committing the crime, and not necessarily this specific officer that was mentioned, um, has been mentioned elsewhere. Um, or it could have been someone dressed as a police officer. But I've seen, you know, on a couple web sleuth, Reddit threads, mention of a police officer. So she ends the letter writing, I am not ending this by signing my name. I will come forward if this is ever proven. I vowed years ago that I will not stop when it comes to Beth Lynn Barr. And after seeing Donna Barr on the news last night, I knew I had to reach out to you. Please take me seriously. Thank you. God bless and stay safe. This is a weird condition. Like, oh, if this is the tip that gets you to prove it, then I'll come forward. But until then, I'm staying silent. It seems weird to say that I'm I'm not going to name myself, but I'm going to continue advocating for this girl. But I'm not. It just seems like it goes against itself. And yeah. if he's dead, like, what repercussions do you, I mean, he's not going to come back and hurt you. It's, why wouldn't you just say it? Right. Maybe just the idea that, like, so often there's the thought that the police will always cover their own. So saying, no, it is a police officer. Just admit that there was someone on the force who messed up. And, like, all will be good. We'll know the answers. Yeah, closure, I'm sure, is a big... Yeah. Yeah. So, Donna Barr has no idea who wrote the letter, and Chief Payne is urging the author to come forward. He says that if she won't come forward for a face-to-face -face interview, he sees no value in this quote-unquote evidence. 
And just a note, I'm not sure how they decided the author was female, other than the fact that the author mentioned a love for the male officer. And I'm sure there could also be other info in the letter. I, you know, it wasn't published in its entirety, so I'm not sure. It's also possible, and again, this just goes back to my obsession with writing and language and all that kind of stuff. You can analyze handwriting and sentence construction, and it's not foolproof, um, but typically a male's handwriting will be more rigid. Um, it might still be neat, but it's going to be straight lines, whereas female handwriting often has more curls or like curvature. Mm -hmm. um, there's also the way that you construct a sentence can tell a lot about you. Um, you can kind of use it to support a claim of what gender wrote it, um, usually with other information as well, but you can figure out like age, right-handed, left-handed, um, educational level, how they probably typically speak, especially in a letter, you're going to get a lot of how they speak. Um, so there's a lot you can get from the actual analysis. And I, I just, I've said it four times, but I want this letter. I know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause that's awesome that you can tell so much, um, by handwriting, but I mean, I feel like maybe they should say we believe it's a woman or something like they seem like dead set. Like this was from a female. So, I mean, well, there's got to be other stuff. Then it was female. If it was short, then it's a male. <laughs> it's like true. Fair enough. <laughs> we have so much more to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there could be, I mean, we have such little tidbits. That was a four page letter. Yeah, so, definitely female. Who, who knows? Yeah, there was probably details in there that had nothing to do with anything. Side rants. Yeah. Side exactly. stories, tangents. And I feel like if a male wrote it, it would be like two paragraphs. They did it and just not signed. Not Yeah, this guy did it. Here you go. It would, they just wouldn't <laughs> sign it. They wouldn't care. I mean, that's fair enough. It definitely sounds female to me, but yeah, need to see the rest of that letter. The more scientific version of that. Yeah. <laughs> However, other good things came from the November 2020 report. Donna Barr has been receiving calls and emails, which gives her renewed hope that people have not forgotten and that eventually police will find out who took her little girl's life. She says, we miss our darling daughter. I'm sorry. I don't want anybody to ever forget. And that's why I wanted to do this interview. I don't ever, ever want anybody to forget her. Um, and Donna Barr had not previously given any interviews. She just kind of wanted to stay out of the media. But she just does not want people to forget about this. And she wants closure. So Beth was properly laid to rest in Woodlawn Cemetery, Wilkinsburg. So this is a different cemetery from where she was found initially. 
So some other interesting points. A friend of Beth's who had moved away from the Wilkinsburg area just three months before Beth's abduction and murder commented on Zandy's first blog post from November 26, 2014, and mentioned that the area actually didn't feel all that safe at that time. And there had been dogs found hanging from trees in the cemetery. Are you serious? That's horrible. Yeah. Like, I honestly can't think of many worse things. Psychopaths that are probably also capable of killing children. So there's that. According to that person, the area, that area of Pittsburgh was really not that safe, even in the 70s. And today it is somewhere to be avoided completely. So my sister, who lives in Pittsburgh, um, and she's familiar with different parts of the city, says, I drive through as fast as I can because it's just, it's not somewhere where you want to hang out. I imagine it has the type of reputation as Kensington or Chester, if you're familiar with the Philadelphia area. So in the 70s, the area surrounding the cemetery where Beth was found and those woods were sort of a lover's lane. Uh, a couple were there. They believe the night before Thanksgiving, but can't be sure. So that was the day slash night. Uh, they that say that Beth they saw murdered. what appeared to be light from a flashlight in the woods. And as they were leaving a drive home, they noticed a pickup truck at the edge of the woods. A man suddenly came out of the truck and was yelling at them to stop. Apparently, his face was right next to their car, and they were super frightened and sped away. So unfortunately, probably due to the fear, they can't remember anything about the man's face. But they describe the pickup truck as being a green short bed truck with flared fenders and a sidestep behind the cab. So I posted some similar models that were pictured in the article where I read this um, because I would never be able to imagine what they're talking about, especially in the 70s. I'm not a car person, so I'm going to put them on Instagram for the rest of you that are like me. And I will post some additional maps, uh, including Beth's walk home which was uh, she went southeast on Ardmore Boulevard away from her elementary school, left on Marble Avenue, and immediate right on Traymore Avenue. Um, and her house was just around the corner from here. I will post a picture of the corner that she was abducted from and those maps as well. So we're going to get into some theories. Um, the first one is a connection to the strangulation murder of Barbara Lewis in 1976. So that would uh, end up being a serial killer theory. Barbara Lewis had been waiting at a bus stop on Long Road in Penn Hill on the morning of her murder, November 19, 1976. Her body was found in a trash can in the Black Ridge Civic Association in Churchill. Her belongings were found in the woods near Princeton Boulevard in Wilkinsburg, which is the street that Beth Lynn Barr had lived on. In May 1980, the Pittsburgh Press reported the police believed Beth's murder was connected to the murder of 10 other children in the area and that they had all been committed by the same man. That string of murders seemed to stop after Beth disappeared. And if you want to read more about this, uh, Zandi Dudiak writes about this in pretty good detail on her blog. Uh, one day in November. 
Um, there was another theory that the killer was a pedophile and her murder was not connected at all to the incident at the bus stop earlier in the day. Um, so I'm guessing there's not too much to go off here, but I'm guessing they're just thinking a random pedophile that maybe lived near her and targeted her specifically. That is really specific. Like, oh, it was it was some guy, but not the same guy that was in the same type of car at a different time of the day. Like, yeah, that sounds like I'm trying to cover my tracks of maybe I was the guy in the car, but I know I didn't kill anybody, but I'm in trouble either way. So I'm just going to say, well, I know they're not the same guy. Yeah, but it it's it's specific. I don't like it. Yeah. It's weird. That's why I didn't really like expand on that very much. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. The other ones make a lot more sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it could have been someone she knew. Witness testimony seemed to suggest that Beth was comfortable with the man she was seen with. Um, Web Sleuth's user Bubbles1428 said, I feel like with her being the child of a police officer, she was likely highly warned to not trust unfamiliar adults i'm convinced that beth knew whoever it was who abducted her so i was curious about this time period with stranger danger and um the crime dog i can't remember his name um and so McGruff, so i asked McGruff the crime McGruff. Yeah. yes yes <laughs> um so i texted my mom and i was like hey we're looking at a case from like late 70s what what kind of like stranger danger or anything did you like know about and i mean my mom grew up in a tiny town where you knew everybody so it was a little bit different than being you know in the outskirts of a city but i mean she said that wasn't a thing you didn't think about mm -mm. stranger danger and it wasn't I feel like sometimes we look at this stuff through the 2021 lens and we're like, oh, don't get in cars with people. Don't, you know, I mean, it It was, again, like you said earlier, it was the 70s. Absolutely. What they did, she said she noticed it more so in the early 90s when she started teaching. Mm -hmm. So for me, I have a son. He's nine. He does have special needs, but we go over the whole entire stranger danger thing all the time. He's been hearing it since he can literally walk, and my sister had him this past week. He had spring break, and I needed a break myself to work, and she took um, my son and her daughter to Target. My son is really known. If you're not next to him, he will start talking to people. It doesn't matter how many times you tell him. It doesn't matter what they look like, who they are, what they have, who they're with. He'll go up and be like, hey, this is my name. What's yours? You want to be my best friend? So she turned her back for a minute. He made a best friend with a guy named Jason and apparently knew all about him. And like the whole entire night, my son, when I went to pick him up, was like, hey, want to hear about my best friend Jason? And it doesn't matter how much I can tell him. Um, it's just like, there's no stranger danger. They don't even have to talk to him. He's like, hey, let's be friends. <laughs> so it's like a struggle just for me. I mean, kids are, I don't know, they're just so innocent and they see the best in people and they just don't have that. Not not all of them don't have that kind of sense of, like, it, this potentially could be a bad person. I don't know. Yeah, and it's like that woman who was one of the sisters that she walked part of the way home with that was being interviewed. 
she said that, you know, she was a kid and she thought that the neighborhood was safe. And then you have these other reports of people that were older at that time. And they were like, that neighborhood was not safe. It was scary as shit. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to that as well. I feel like my kid would sell my husband and I soul for a bag of M&M's. He has no stranger danger. He would talk to anybody. <laughs> and But I do know, like, in the 80s, I mean, I grew up in the 80s, and that McGruff, there was a board game called Don't Talk to Strangers, and you would roll the dice, and when you would land on on your spot, you would pick a card and it would give you a scenario and you had to say what you would do in that scenario. And then you would go from there and you either move forward or your parents, like you would, it would prompted a discussion with your parents on what to do in different situations. And I just really remember playing it because my parents were into making sure that we were safe. And I got to eat all the gummy bears because we lost the pieces that marked where you were. So we used gummy bears instead. And if we got it right, I got to eat the gummy bear. Nice. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, these are the types of cases that were the reason for stranger danger and telling cautionary tales to your children. I think, I mean, there was just so many of these stories from the seventies. So many, no one locked their doors. No one watched their children. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know how our parents survived, but it also wasn't publicized the way it is now. Yeah. So it, I mean, it happened and it sounds horrible, but Facebook didn't say it. So it didn't really happen then. Right. Yeah. That's fair enough. (laughs) and you know what i did forget to mention that uh beth's clothing and the test that had been ordered on it by assistant chief deputy coroner anthony pankowski um that stuff was destroyed in a basement flood at the homicide unit so convenient yeah that's kind of a thing that you should know (laughs) especially when you're refusing to look into a former police officer's involvement Yep. I feel like that happens a lot, though. Not, like, convenience-wise, but I know there's, like, a whole section in Ancestry that's not available because the building that housed all of the archives either flooded or caught fire or something like that. So I don't think it's uncommon, especially in that time frame. They weren't quite as careful with evidence. Yeah. Though when I think about it, honestly, sometimes I think, how much evidence must they have for, like, all the crimes, like, where do they store? I mean, like, in my own house, I get flooded. So, like, how can I be mad about them in a structure or fires happen or things like that? So, sometimes I am I always hear, like, conveniently, they lost um, this evidence, which is super important. And I'm not, like, making any excuses. But, like, how much evidence do they have? Like, there's got to be so much evidence for all these other cases. And where is it? And do they have a good system? Like, I can't even organize my own house, let alone a warehouse full of evidence. Like, I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. It is. And I don't know. They sound a little disorganized, if I'm being honest. But I mean, and now- I do think, I think even, sorry, I want to hop back on something that Chelsea just said. Um, I think a lot of times they don't have room to put it. And sometimes if a case is old enough, it just gets destroyed, especially if it's a case that now this one was open, but um, a lot of cases that are considered solved, they'll just, if they need to, nowadays they digitize them. But, um, you know, previously, if they didn't have room, they would just 
burn. I listened to a podcast last week where they tried to uh, clear someone's name after they were put to death and they had none of the documents because they were just burned because it was solved. So I think it, it does happen a lot more than we think about. Yeah, I mean, they don't have infinite room. So yeah, back then when you didn't have everything on the computer. I think too that we hold them to such a high standard that we don't take note that they are human and that natural disasters happen. And so we're more agitated because we expect things not to happen to them. Very true. Mm -hmm. Well, then also, like, if you're thinking about all the older cases, like, digitizing is, like, super awesome and can be super fast. But when you're talking about, like, hundreds of thousands of cases, I can't even imagine how much time, especially when crime doesn't stop, for you to just catch on up and have everything, you know, digitized. I mean, it's just, I I feel bad for them. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just like, there's so much. Yeah. And today, you know, we have like fire safes and, you know, waterproof stuff and they take more precautions today, but uh, they had to learn those lessons along the way somewhere. Yeah, true. So another really gross theory is a pastor in the area who is now deceased Um, He was the assistant pastor at the church the bars attended. Apparently, he had a blue car with red and white plates. Um, He was from Ohio. He was actually interviewed by police in connection with Beth's murder, but his alibi is that he was counseling a married couple at the time of her abduction. Um, But apparently, as far as I could find, there's no official records to support this. But I guess the police still didn't have enough to hold him. So according to those around at this time, he was a real creep. According to them, he was always offering cigarettes, alcohol, and drugs to teenagers so they would come hang out in his basement. There were also allegations of him making sexual comments to a woman in her 30s. I believe she was his neighbor. Some of the kids were even afraid of him, but at that time it was hard to get parents to believe them, at least right away. But at one point, four families came forward to press charges against him for sexually harassing their children. The deal was that he either leave the church immediately or charges would be filed. So he left. He returned to Ohio and served as a pastor and university chaplain in northwestern Ohio until 1995 when he died at the age of 65. So the other thing is he matches the description and sketch released by authorities fairly well. And I will kind of back up on that by saying, besides what the guy was wearing, it's a pretty generic description of a white guy, medium build with medium brown hair. So, I mean, just take that with a grain of salt that they say he matched the description. I got to say with the car too, like you're not that far from Ohio. So there's going to be a lot of red and white plates in that part of PA. Mm -hmm. And all we know is it was blue. I mean, that's a good chunk of cars. So I'm sure plenty of people come there to work. Oh yeah. 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 And I looked and uh, quite a few states even ones close to PA at the time had red and white plates. So the woman at the bus stop, she had gotten the plate number, which was an Ohio plate that she gave to the police. But who's to say the elderly neighbor 
didn't see a completely different car with, say, a Maryland license plate because that was red and white at that time as well. Um, And about the pastor, there is a blog post on Zandy's blog, uh, again, one day in November, from January 2015 called Suffer the Little Children, if you want to read more on that. So this is more of a conspiracy theory um, that I'm just going to touch on, but uh, Edward Wayne Edwards was a convicted American serial killer. He escaped from jail in Akron, Ohio in 1955 and fled across the country holding up gas stations. By 1961, he was on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. Edwards was captured and arrested in Atlanta, Georgia on January 20th, 1962. After he was granted parole in 1967, Edwards murdered at least five people between 1977 and 1996, and he is suspected of several additional killings. He admitted to killing three people in Ohio, which, remember, is, you know, right over the border from Pittsburgh, including his foster son. So John Cameron, former FBI cold case task force officer, made a docuseries along with Edwards' grandson, alleging that Edwards is the perpetrator of dozens of murders, including Jean Benet, Lacey Peterson, Elizabeth Smart, who is um, better known as the Black Dahlia, and the Making a Murderer case involving Stephen Avery. And there are so many more. Basically, he tries to link him to every huge murder case in history. Um, This hurts my head. First of all, (laughs) his name is Edward Edwards. (laughs) I know. And I don't understand why people do that to their children. (laughs) Yeah, he didn't have a great start in life. (laughs) Right? Um, I mean, I could kind of go along with this when we just had that first bit of information. Um, But then trying to claim all of these other cases that are so spread out on a timeline and geographically, it, it doesn't... I don't know. It feels like I don't know how many people are how I met your mother fans, but I have a problem. So there's this constant ongoing joke that Barney is trying to convince Ted that he slept with Ted's mom. And he always tells these stories like recounting what happened the night before, but then he'll always take it one step too far and it makes it unbelievable. And I feel like that's what's happening. Like, just go with... Yeah, I killed three people. One of them was my foster son. It happened at this time. Like, leave out John Benet Ramsey and Lacey Peterson and Black Dahlia. I just, just move on. <laughs> like, don't, don't try to take too much credit. Though I do know that uh, um, Edward's daughter is the one who ended up getting him um, caught, and she is doing a podcast. Um, And the only reason she remembered was because they lived in the area where two people ended up getting shot and she had stumbled across, I guess, their remains. And then, I mean, she was little, I think like eight or something. And then she was watching something on TV, like a true crime thing and was like, hey, we live there. My dad worked at the place where they were shot. She She called the police and it took, it took months until they got back to her. And then now she's working on trying to figure out where they had moved to because apparently they constantly moved around trying to figure out what other murders because she believes he was involved in other murders, but she doesn't mention the other things like 
those super, you know, known cases. It's more like, I guess, not more realistic, but like based on where they lived. Yeah. And she um, was featured in the docuseries. What were the typical victims? Like, do we know? He did, uh, at least from, I had listened to that podcast up to a, a couple episodes because like th- it, there was a big break between them, like when they got released uh, unlike other podcasts like Crime Junkie because like, I guess because she had to go through her past and like really remember things. Um, couples. I know he did, I think, at least two couples, I think. Oh, they said something about they said something about the Zodiac killer trying to link him to that as well. But I mean, it does if they're accusing him of all of these, like he doesn't really have an MO. It's just killing everybody. <laughs> well, I know for the uh, at least the one that he definitely was convicted of and confessed to and um they had evidence for it, it was literally just a couple i think they were young teens i mean don't quote me but they were leaving where he was working and he just shot them like there was no i don't think there was any motive he just did it yeah there's definitely no doubt that he was an awful human for sure but to link him to all these other i think is definitely a stretch yeah. I mean, Stephen Avery. Yeah. Yeah. And his daughter and it's her nephew that are also in this docuseries. They're, they're not exactly sold on that either. They think that he definitely committed other murders, but not necessarily these high profile ones. So I didn't get to watch the whole thing because it would have cost like $14, but I did watch the first episode and it's, it's a ride. Um, but you know, I won't go too far into that theory because it's insane and I'm not saying that it can't be true, but there's so much involved. I could never explain it in one episode and I don't want to take anything away from the main point, which is Beth Lynn. So, but if you do want to learn more, I recommend Reddit and John Cameron's, it was him, the many murders of Ed Edwards. He has a documentary and a book. So there is also Wilbur P. Hawthorne III. After a witness identified Hawthorne in a police photo, um, my question was, was this a lineup or just a single photo? As the man they saw in the blue car with Beth, police arrested him and charged him with Beth's murder on December 10th, 1977. But he ended up having an alibi that checked out. He was in Johnstown on business the day of Beth's murder. He worked for his family's business, which is legit and still registered because I looked it up. So police released him. He apparently passed a polygraph and his brother passed a polygraph as well. It's believed that the police, thinking that Beth may still be alive, rushed to make the arrest. Um, In a small newspaper blurb shortly after Hawthorne, who actually goes by Timmy, was released, an apparent friend of the family wrote in to vouch for Hawthorne's character, saying that he's done so much for the youth of the area and that there is no way he could have done this. He said that he is of strong Christian faith, and this was her attempt to help heal his reputation. There was one line in a report that said some close to the family said that Hawthorne may have some mental problems, but that was, I mean, it was one line. I didn't find anything other than that. So it should be noted that Hawthorne was charged with criminal solicitation to commit sodomy with the teenage girl a few months before this, but these charges were later dropped 
And he was also tried and acquitted of aggravated assault and assault and battery in 1973. So, um, so like I said, originally charged, but eventually the charges were dropped for both of these. Uh, Hawthorne died in 2016. And I do want to mention again, this person has been officially cleared as a suspect. So even though I'm throwing his name out there, um, you know, he was cleared. And as far as I know, this was the only arrest made in the case. So Beth's mother, Donna, is convinced that she will see justice for her daughter within her lifetime. If you have any information about the kidnapping and or murder of Beth Lynn Barr, please contact the Allegheny County Police Homicide Division at 412-473-1300. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins, production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.